0: and welcome to Galley Stories, Stories of the Bering Sea and Beyond, hosted by Mark Kaler. My name is Penka Jane, podcast deckhand and longtime listener. We'd thank you to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review. Here's today's catch.
1: Hello guys, and welcome to another installment of Galley Stories, Stories of the Bering Sea and Beyond. I am your host, Mark Kaler, and we are going beyond today. We will touch on the Bering Sea. Uh, This is gonna be a very unique episode as i am going to interview commander brad boyd uh of the united states navy as first person interview as the uss nautilus so this is going to be interesting Uh, first uh, commander boyd thanks for taking the time to do this Uh, no problem happy to help and and to become the the uss nautilus which you've dedicated a lot of time to i'll
0: uh, i'll I'll do my best to stay in character for
1: you (laughs) okay okay so here we go guys So, uh, Nautilus, can you tell us where you were born?
0: Yeah, so uh, I was, uh, my keel was laid on January 14th in 1952 when uh, President Truman stamped his initials into my hull. Uh, and from that point on, uh, I was constructed at electric boat, Groton, Connecticut, uh, about two miles from where I sit right now. And uh, over hundreds of people worked on me and over thousands, probably tens of thousands of man hours uh, were used in constructing me. Uh, through my launching in January of 1954, and my ultimate commissioning on September 30th, 1954.
1: What was your What was your first experience getting out to sea for the first time? How did that go?
0: So my very first experience uh, was in uh, January 1955. Went on the 17th of January. I was going down the river and uh, was underway on nuclear power for the first time, the first vessel in the world to ever have uh, a nuclear pow- a nuclear propulsion uh, for my primary system. How did you feel about that, being the first? I was very proud. So it was, uh, it was a major accomplishment. Uh, the United States Navy was leading the way for uh, nuclear power uh, on vessels, obviously, being I was the first vessel, vessel submarine, submarine or surface vessel, to ever have nuclear propulsion. Um, however, we were also leading the civilian industry in the safety standards that would be set uh, for upcoming operations. So how did, um, how did going from—I well, well, I don't even know what the power was before
1: that. Was it diesel-powered— so I be- guess.
0: before that, the primary methods were diesel uh, as your primary engine, and then batteries when you're actually submerged and away from and away from uh, the air. The uh, submarine has been on that since the 1900s. The very first one was gasoline, uh, but they figured out pretty quickly that's probably not the best thing to do. It's a little yeah. unstable and it can go boom. Um, also, some toxic fumes. So uh, they went to diesel engines, uh, and that was the primary method and really the only method up through World War II. Uh, The Germans experimented a little bit with a a hydrogen peroxide fuel so that you could actually run the diesel engine while submerged Um, It worked, um, although you run out of fuel eventually because the hydrogen peroxide takes up more volume than just regular fuel does because you have to bring the oxygen with you But I didn't really have to do that. So with nuclear power It's all self-contained and so therefore I was divorced from the atmosphere and that was the major accomplishment that nuclear power brought for the submarine force Uh, and from that point on uh, the primary focus was on nuclear-powered submarines, vice uh, the conventional diesel power. We'd build a few more, but we'd really shifted to the nuclear power uh, model. How was the reaction of the people around you when you first launched? I mean, did this, did this
1: bring? Did this have a big effect on the view of the of the navy when you first
0: set sail? Absolutely, my start ushered in the new age where the submarine is no longer tied to the surface. Uh, immediately following World War II, uh, the the Country of concern was obviously the Soviet Union as the Cold War kicked off, and our nation was effectively blind uh, to what was going on behind the Iron Curtain, and the only intelligence we could really get came from the submarine. However, anti-submarine warfare technology had drastically improved over the course of World War II, and our diesel boats were being forced back to the surface in very embarrassing situations because we're now operating and spying on the Soviets. Uh, Nuclear power allowed us to not be tied to the surface and be able to conduct operations freely and independently uh, such that we could evade the Soviet fleet and we could gather the intelligence our country sorely needed. What was the longest uh, dive prior to you entering the water? What was the longest dive for a sub? Prior to my submergence, the longest dive would have been about 36 to 48 hours. Uh, The limiting factor for a submarine prior to nuclear power was twofold. One was obviously the battery. You had to have enough propulsion uh, to be able to get back to the surface. And two was oxygen on board. So whatever you went down with is all you had. There's no ability to introduce oxygen back to the crew and no ability to get rid of carbon dioxide or carbon monoxide. When I went to sea, I did not go with an oxygen generator. That came back, that came around in the 1960s. However, I went to sea with uh, liquid oxygen tanks in my ba- in my main ballast tanks, and we would bleed oxygen in into uh, the hull so that my crew could live. Um, this gave me about a three-week uh, endurance time frame underwater. From the first time that, y- that you felt the water go over your back, how long were you under that time? Uh, the very first time was just a few hours, just a quick verification that everything was working. But my first true underway what happened in... Uh, May of 1955 when on May 10th I left Groton Connecticut and went to San Juan Puerto Rico it's 1100 nautical miles I stayed submerged the entire trip um, and I set every record there that to date for longest submerged transit and highest sustained speed transit how fast did you go uh, my top speed was 22 knots and so I was averaging about 16 17 knots all the way there
1: what was the average what
0: was the top speed
1: of a boat before you did this
0: uh, top speed of a diesel boat submarine would have been about 17, 18 knots on the surface and about 8 or 9 knots submerged, and that's a very short sprint. Uh, the limited speed submerged was primarily due to the fact that the battery capacity and our ability to discharge the battery. We could only take the, the juice out of the battery so fast, which limits how fast you can make the boat go. Now, what, what kind of effect did that have on the crew you had on board? I mean, did, I mean the three weeks underwater, that was the first time ever. So when I went to sea, we actually went with a full-on medical doctor. Uh, and he was not there for nuclear power concerns. He was there because they didn't know what was going to happen when the hatch went shut. As I said before, it was you know, 36, 48 hours, so a day and a half to two days was the most that somebody would stay underwater. Now we're talking three weeks. So they wanted to do a psychological evaluation with my crew to make sure that they're still fit and they can handle the stresses of being underwater because we really didn't know what it was going to be. Uh, They quickly figured out that the doctor was going to be very underemployed. Uh, The crew, being submariners, is going to have fun with him and do everything they could to convince him that they are insane and at the very last second saying, I'm just messing with you, Doc. So the Navy decided very quickly that we didn't need a full medical doctor on board uh, to uh, evaluate my crew, and uh, we switched to an independent duty corpsman.
1: Okay. And then uh, I I would guess that your crew became somewhat famous. I mean, they were the first ones to do it. Did they feel some accomplishment, and how did... uh how did everybody
0: react to that first journey or was it expected it, it both very very proud um my crew was hand-picked so we were hand selected to be on the very first nuclear submarine because we wanted to make sure that everything went smoothly um, I'm, I am very much an experimental platform for the Navy. So very first nuclear propulsion system, uh, I was a Type 21 German U-boat design because at the end of World War II, the Germans had the deepest diving submarines, so we took the blueprints for that and put that uh, together, and I was the first one launched with that. So I'm the first one under a new design system. Uh, I was the first one to have sustained operations underwater. I was the first one to have uh, oxygen tanks put in to uh, make sure that I could my crew could breathe so I was very much experimental and as a result the crew was handpicked to make sure that they could deal with anything unexpected because we didn't know what to expect at this point the manuals literally weren't written so we we were very proud of what we did and we were also instantly a celebrity so everybody wanted to be seen on board. In fact, it was very rare that I could get underway for the first about five, six years of my life without a dignitary on board wanting to be seen on Nautilus. From the president to chief naval operations, secretary of the Navy, to various submariners, to even just local politicians and movie stars alike, everybody wanted to be seen on Nautilus. Who was the first commander to be entrusted to to run you? Uh, commander Wilkinson was the first CO. Uh, he uh, came on during shipyard and he took us out. Uh, and I submerged with him for the very first time. And he was my CO until about 1957 when it turned over to Commander Anderson.
1: So now after after uh, making that first long trip, I assume that you settled into the everyday life of doing your job of protecting this country. But uh, what were some of the jobs and responsibilities
0: that you had? So the role, the role I played as a, a fast attack submarine, in fact the very first fast attack submarine, would have been to... Uh, maintain security of our of our waters Uh, i would conduct uh, intelligence operations i could uh interdict maritime traffic uh through radioing in somebody else to come i would i wouldn't go you know surface and send my crew ashore or uh send them over a little raiding craft to go talk to a ship but i could call a destroyer or someone else to come take care of that Uh, but i'd be the one that could find that ship for them Um, i would also be able to uh uh conduct special operations um i could and my primary job really was to uh be the test platform for nuclear power to uh verify that everything we wanted to do could be done i would set the speed record i would set the endurance record i would uh evaluate uh new equipment that we wanted to put on uh to submarines they'd te- they'd test it on me first so that we could verify everything's going to work correctly and then roll out to the rest of the fleet and that was my primary job throughout most of that
1: i i imagine that uh over the years of your service that you visited many, many foreign ports. How were you, uh, how, how were you
0: reacted to and received when when you were in foreign ports? Uh, I was very well received. Once again, everybody wanted to be seen on board uh, Nautilus, so uh, we went to uh, the the probably the best foreign port I was at was actually in France, where uh, uh, in celebration of going 20,000 leagues under the sea and my namesake Nautilus is from Jules Verne's 20,000 leagues under the sea. Uh, we were presented an 1892 in French edition copy of 20,000 under Leagues Under the Sea by the French government. Do you still have that on, on board you now? Uh, I do. In fact, it's on display uh, just outside the uh, Commander and Exo's uh, uh, staterooms in the uh, wardroom area. That, that's quite an accomplishment. What's What would you
1: say would be your greatest accomplishment?
0: So my greatest accomplishment would have to be going under the North Pole. So Commander Anderson realized that nautilus didn't just open up the depths uh, for long time uh, underwater operations he realized that to go under the ice a submarine was the only real viable option and so in 1957 he uh, convinced his superiors to give him orders to go as far north as possible while he was in route to uh, a nato exercise and he actually made it to 87 degrees north so 180 miles south of the north pole and at that point we had a complete navigation failure. Uh, my, what happened my magnetic compass doesn't work north of magnetic north and my gyroscopic compass failed. Gyroscopes work great at the equator because it's based on the Earth's rotation, but they don't work so well at the top of the world. we uh, My crew w- worked to uh, restore my navigation. Uh, we actually ended up with a 40 nautical mile position error and I almost ran aground off of Greenland. Uh, Thankfully we uh, recognized the shoaling waters And turned away to known good water Problem was we couldn't just turn around Because that could take us back under the arctic ice We needed to go uh, one way or the other To make sure that we got out to good water So that we could surface Um, We managed to do that and uh, go south Reestablish the navigation equipment Get a ship's position and carry on to the exercise But we took a lot of lessons learned from that See I
1: I heard a rumor That you bumped your nose under the first first attempt And then went and laid in Hawaii for a little while Before you went back up
0: Oh, uh, that's, that's next. So the very first attempt would have been in 1957. is the next one. So the impetus for all this is Sputnik. When Sputnik launched, uh, the United States was very much behind the Soviets in rocket technology, at least perceived by the world. In reality, we're only about six months behind. Uh, the Soviets had put more emphasis on some of the practical applications were able to get a viable rocket up. But the pressure was on, and we needed to convince the Allies uh, of the United States and our own populace that we ne- had a viable technological sl- uh, uh, response to the Soviet Union. So the Vanguard missile program, uh, Vanguard rocket program, was accelerated, and some spectacular failures in the launch pad, uh occurred. Every explosion kind of lessened the public's trust that we could survive and, and respond and hold the Soviet Union accountable to nuclear aggression, as well as our Allies president eisenhower was desperate for a way to prove that we had military technology equal to or superior to that of the soviets our commander anderson he proposed going under the ice and transiting from the pacific to the atlantic via the north pole proving that under ice operations were possible and that we could shift our fleet of submarines from the pacific to the atlantic via via the top of the world and not have to go through the choke point of the panama canal or the long route down around south africa excuse me south america so he proposed it up. It was under uh, classified orders. It was codenamed Operation Sunshine, kept at the top secret level. Uh, President Eisenhower seized on this for two reasons. One, uh, it would prove our technological superiority in the submarine operations. And two, if it failed, he didn't have to tell anybody. So the submarine <laughs> service is called the silent service, and that's not due to the fact we're quiet underwater. It's because we keep our secrets, and the submarine force will be able to keep that secret if anything should go wrong. So thankfully nothing did. But we were transferred to the Pacific Fleet under the uh, guise of uh, uh, familiarizing the pacific fleet with uh, nuclear submarine capabilities. We go through the Panama Canal and actually just a few days after going through the Panama Canal we had some oil soaked lagging uh, from a small oil leak we didn't know was there on one of my turbines that soaked uh, soaked into the lagging and then when it caught fire heavy black smoke filled the compartment. Thankfully no damage occurred except to my lagging but uh, and no one was injured but Commander Anderson and the engineer quickly realized that if this had happened under the ice, we would have had no way to come back to the surface to take the bad air off the ship and bring in new air. And we'd have to have extended operations uh, with just what we called oxygen breathing apparatus at the time. So I did not have an ability to give the crew air from my ballast tanks yet. Excuse me, from from my air tanks yet. So what they came up with was instead of the oxygen breathing apparatus, which is a, it looks like a little bladder that sits on your chest, you put a lithium hydroxide canister in it, you ignite it on fire. You have a controlled fire on your chest that actually off-gasses more ac- oxygen than it uses. And that was the way that we breathe. But there's only so many of them on board, and there's only so many canisters. And if you don't have one, you better hold your breath and hope we get to a spot that we can swap the air out. Commander Anderson and the Inge realized that I have 4,000 pounds of high-pressure air ready to blow my ballast tanks dry in an emergency at a moment's notice. And we've already tapped into that on the ship to get 100-pound air to equipment to use air-driven equipment that needs it for starting of motors, what, what have you. All we needed to do was get it down to 20 pounds so that you don't blow your lungs out, and then we needed to come up with a way to deliver it to a person so they could breathe. So they made a few drawings, and when we pulled into Mare Island Shipyard for a quick uh, resupply and outfit, uh, we submitted it to the shipyard workers, and they said, absolutely, we can do this. And so I had this system installed on board that was PVC pipe and garden hose to a specialized mask that they could breathe from, and my crew was able to breathe from my airbanks uh, as a result. So. We finished from Mare Island, we went up to Seattle, uh, and then we made our first attempt to the North Pole. Uh, And we wanted to go from the west to the east because the most dangerous side is actually on the west side in the Barents, and that's due to water depth. So the ice keels are deep no matter where you go, but the water depth is shallowest going through the Barents. And so there was a period of time where I was six feet off the bottom, and I could not tell where the ice keel ended and my top of my sail began. So we went through a couple of spots like that and we realized that ice is just a little bit too thick. Um, and so we had to turn around and go south. And we went to uh, Pearl Harbor. And we waited a few weeks for the ice to thin out just a little bit. And then we get underway from Pearl Harbor and go north, made it through the ice keels this time, made it, uh, made it through uh, the Barents. And then once we got past that, the water depth opened and we could just run at a few hundred feet down, pretty much about 500 feet. And we and I ran at about 20 knots under the North Pole. and on August 3rd, 1958, I crossed 90 degrees north uh, and proved that submarine operations under the ice are possible. Did you stop and celebrate it all? Absolutely not we just carried on uh-huh. although there was a lot of people on board that were uh, fighting to be in the most forward position of the ship uh, so there had one person I was the first one to cross because I was in the torpedo room I had another crew member on board who I uh, was taking a shower so you could take a shower I was taking a shower when I crossed 90 degrees north you name it everybody's trying to do something a little special uh, we did have a celebration of uh, my, my Cooks made a cake. We had a quick, you know, everybody ate a piece of cake and had a quick celebration uh, for that. And uh, Santa Claus came in and uh, chastised us a little bit for just running through his neighborhood, but uh, promised that as long as we were good guests, then uh, all of our families would uh, get good gifts for Christmas that year. I
1: was going to ask how your crew reacted of going underneath, knowing that they were underneath that much ice and running that far.
0: Uh, But it sounds like they were in pretty good spirits. Everybody's in good spirits. We were a little nervous, uh, but we knew that, once we got through the Barents, that was the real issue, unless we had a casualty on board. Because after that, the ice may go down 120, 200 feet, but if I'm running at 500 feet, and there's another 1,000 feet before the ocean floor, I've got no real duress from navigation standpoint, as long as my gyroscopes hold, and as long as I, um, I, don't, have, I don't have a casualty that forces me back up. My gyroscopes, after the le- lessons we learned in 1957... Um, they had some modifications done to them, and they held, and we were able to make it all the way through. How, how
1: long did it take you to make that run, and did you find yourself trying to run as harder than you normally would have because you were underneath
0: <laughs> that much ice? So uh, I started the run uh, on 23 July of 1958, and I was under the ice on August 1st. So uh, about nine days later, I was under the ice. And then two days after that, I'm at the North Pole. And two days after that, I'm out of the ice on the Atlantic side. So I actually had about four days under the ice uh, that I was doing all this. But we get out of the ice and we drove over uh, to uh, uh, England and they actually took Commander Anderson off. So I surfaced, uh, got Commander Anderson off. He turned command over to uh, the executive officer who pulled her into Portsmouth. um, And they flew Commander Anderson back to the United States to make the announcement to the world. Because uh, President Eisenhower wanted to make sure there was absolutely no leaks. He wanted to control the information and, and uh, announcement to the world of the accomplishment that Nautilus had that, that Nautilus crew that my crew had made. And uh, so we controlled uh, flew him back, uh, made the announcement, and the obvious one was we can go from the Pacific to the Atlantic, the Atlantic to the Pacific without having to go through the Panama Canal. Um, the other one was the United States Navy and the submarine force can operate unfettered under the ice, which means we have access to the entire Soviet Union's backyard, which they thought was unassailable at that point, that they controlled it. And that meant, even if we don't have ballistic missile technology, which is what everyone was concerned with with Sputnik, because the next step from putting a satellite in space was to putting a warhead in space, even though we don't have ballistic missile capability, I can still get a cruise missile off your coast and I can still threaten you and hold you hold you accountable in just a matter of days it sounds like just a matter of days without because I imagine going
1: south and through the Panama Canal and back around that front door or their backyard would take a lot longer to get to
0: absolutely uh in fact uh submarines today um are able to get we can get somebody on a station off of uh the South China Sea off of Japan you name it faster from Groton Connecticut than I can from San Diego California by going under the ice wow how did you feel about the accomplishment? I was proud. I knew I could do it, though.
1: <laughs> no, no doubts. <laughs> no doubts. So, at this time, when you did do that, was there uh, was there becoming was there being any other nuclear submarines introduced into the fleet?
0: Uh, yes. So, uh, not long after me was the uh, the Skate, um, and Skate actually surfaced at the North Pole eleven days after I did. We were looking for a a, a We stole the Russian word for uh, basically thin ice or uh, area where there's uh, a free of ice. We stole the word from them because they had it and we didn't at the time. And uh, looking for a plane you couldn't find it. Uh, but we turned everything we knew over to skate, and they were able to, uh, 11 days later, the ice is just a little bit more, and they were really f- able to find a spot and uh, actually surfaced uh, in the vicinity of the North Pole. And uh, the, first, the first people you see playing at the top of the North Pole from a submarine, that's the skate. I believe I've heard something about that. It sounds like you've had
1: a lot of accomplishments and good times in your career. What was your scariest time when
0: you were at sea? So
1: it's whatever you can share
0: so the scariest time would have to be in uh, 1966 uh, when I was conducting operations off of Norfolk, and I was part of an exercise uh, and I was working with a carrier battle group, the USS Essex carrier battle group and uh, I'm coming to periscope depth and the problem that uh, I have is I am designed off the Type 21 German U-boat design which means I'm designed after a U-boat or a diesel submarine from World War II. Diesel submarines from World War II are primarily surface ships that have the ability to go underwater more than once. But they're designed to do to run on the surface and only submerge for short periods of time. I'm the opposite. I'm, des- I'm intended to be underwater. However, my hull design is still that of somebody who's supposed to be on the surface. So all the flow noise over the hull caused issues with my sonar, and I couldn't hear too well after about four knots. So I'm coming up the periscope depth, and I couldn't hear anything, and I couldn't hear the Essex. And so I'm going along, and all of a sudden, I get, uh, there's a collision, and Essex collides with the sail of, uh, of my hull and uh, rips a quarter of it off. Thankfully, that, no one of my crew was actually hurt during this. That and, had it hurt. Uh, and, uh, But it stung a bit. Um, I had to come back into Shipyard, and there's some pictures of uh, part of my sail just dangling as it got ripped off. How long did it take you to get par- repaired up? It took a few months. Yeah. So it wasn't, it wasn't too bad because it didn't hit any vital systems, so it was just metalwork. Um, but it took a few months to get, uh, the sail repaired. So how long has your service been? Uh, so I, my service was, uh, just over 25 years. Mm -hmm. So uh, I was commissioned in, uh, September of 54 and I was decommissioned March 3rd, 1980. Uh, at that... Retired, huh? I was, I was retired. So I went back to Mare Island Shipyard where I had my, uh, emergency air breathing uh, system put in the, uh, system to tie into my ballast tanks, uh, to my, 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 uh, air tanks, um, for my crew to breathe and uh retired there and they knew that they wanted to make a museum out of me to tell the story of nuclear power and tell the story of the submarine force uh, but they didn't know where to put me and so there was a big grassroots effort to get me to where i am today here in groton connecticut but the other two options were in washington dc and the naval academy admiral rickover uh, father of the nuclear navy actually wanted me to go to the annapolis uh, he thought he'd get best traction out of the public there and keep it tied to the Navy by having it where the Naval Academy is. Um, But the grassroots effort convinced President Carter that uh, it should be here in uh, Groton, Connecticut. Why? uh, Where I was built. So just two miles up the river from Electric Boat where I was built. uh, The sons and daughters of Connecticut are the ones who built me. um, And I was manned out of the... uh, I was primarily uh, here in Groton, Connecticut was where I spent my service life uh and so this was the place for me to come back to. It felt like home. It does. So, and on April 11th, uh, 1986, the anniversary of uh the submarine force, uh 86th anniversary to the day, I uh opened up as a historic ship Nautilus as part of the Submarine Force Museum. And it, where is that where you see your future? So I've got at least two more years here before I go to dry dock because uh, I need I need some refresh in my paint and uh, some making sure that all my all my uh, seals are still holding and do a quick outfit of me. It'll be a few months long, and then uh, I'll could be good for another 30 years uh, here in Groton, Connecticut. Uh, how would
1: you? What would you say that people would get out of coming to visit you here?
0: So. I would say the biggest thing you're going to get is an appreciation for submarines um, and the what my crew has to go through uh, in order just to just to take the boats to sea and provide the security that we do for our nation. Um, you're also going to get an appreciation for just day-to-day life. Uh, you'll see what they lived in, um, and while modern submarines have changed in many ways, the the crew conditions really haven't so the 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 bunks got a little bit bigger about another two inches in height so you're not smacking your head as much but um many people that have served on board submarines smack their heads and you know live to tell the tale Mm -hmm. um but uh you're going to get appreciation for that and as part of the museum you can go through there and you can see the technological change uh that has happened throughout the submarine force and the culture we uh acquired in world war ii it's really where uh uh, the submarine force culture came from is uh, battle-hardened world war ii and then uh, all the way up to present day, uh, you can at least understand what the Submariner goes through if not know the exact mission that they're doing.
1: Mm -hmm. So it sounds like you've always been protective of your crew and and try to keep them safe. What what advice would you have for anyone listening that would think about becoming a member of a
0: crew like the one that you had? Well, if you want to be a Submariner, we take all type all, all vocations for it. We have mechanics, be it nuclear or non-nuclear. We have weapons. They uh, the torpedo men who take care of the torpedoes, the missiles, uh, and the firearms uh, for when we come in port, and need to provide our security. We have yeomen who do uh, is basically the navy word for a secretary or office assistant. We have sonar techs who listen to who are our eyes and ears while we're underwater. I have fire controlmen who uh, plot. Uh, ships positions uh, of, uh, excuse me uh, contacts uh, and then I have quartermasters who plot, plot ships position between the two I know where I am and where everyone else is for either targeting or for avoidance I have uh, supply people who uh, ensure that I have uh, all, the, all the supplies on board I, uh, logistics uh, technicians and then I also have um, uh, cooks maintain the food for the crew we have three meals a day for 140 to 150 people uh, on board a modern submarine and then we have uh, everything else in between that you can think of. I have uh, IT equipment, so if you really like computers, you can still serve on board a submarine. Communications, uh, electronics warfare, uh, analyzing signals, all that's available. Um, and so whatever your strength is, you still have the ability to serve in the submarine. Uh, if you want to serve on board a submarine, you have to be willing to uh, put in some long hours. Uh, we, we work pretty hard. It's a smaller crew. Um, for example, a destroyer, which... Uh, is about the same size in terms of length uh, as the submarine, but has double the crew uh, just because they have the space to put them on, whereas I don't. So everybody has to be able to do more work. Uh, You trust the person next to you. Uh, They have to do the job correctly, and correctly means perfectly. Um, And you have to trust that uh, they're going to do the job while you're sleeping or while you're uh, uh, doing maintenance on something else and they're standing the watch. You have to trust that the maintenance is done correctly. And you have to be willing to... uh, um, handle long times at sea without seeing the sun uh we, we screen for that don't worry we're not going to put you on board a submarine for the first time with uh you know, claustrophobia and uh, yeah. you know you know you don't get to go see the sun again for another 60 days and that's the first time you realize it we'll, we'll screen for that and put you in tight quarters beforehand so you know for sure and th- don't worry the navy's not just going to throw you away there's plenty of other jobs that need to be done um but uh those are the type of things you need to consider if you uh, want to become a submariner.
1: so a couple that i just just a couple questions that i want to know just for fun Mm-hmm. and you may know this i know you you lay here most of the time well all the time until you're going to dry dock but what's the longest that a submarine has been underwater now
0: that's not classified without uh, surfacing so i i don't know the longest straight without surfacing it's probably going to be around 80 days uh would be for uh it would be a guess longest i uh um uh, my current OIC, Commander Boyd, has been there is uh, under 62 days uh, straight without servicing. Um, The current crew that I have, one has been on board, was underway 67 days. Um, It's usually around that, um, and it's not necessarily that we can't stand no longer, it's just that uh, we typically pull into ports to give everybody a break, and then to resupply up, so that you can... I typically would go to sea with a 90- to 120-day loadout, same as modern submarines would. um, But we don't want to go down to just the bare minimum. So we're going to go down about, you know, a third to a half of it. And then we'll go and restock a little bit. So that way, if we have to go out for a longer period of time, we have, we're ready to go for extended operations. Got to get that fresh fruit on board. So, yeah, we don't really have fresh fruit that often. So <laughs> two freezers. Um, when doing local operations, one of the freezers is a fridge. Um, but when you're deployed, fr- uh, refrigerator stuff doesn't last as long. So we have two freezers and then everything else comes out of a number 10 can. Um, and, uh, make the food that way. Okay, and then another one, just for fun, is uh, in just about every
1: uh, movie, documentary that you see for a submarine, when they're looking up the periscope, when your commander is looking up your periscope, they always seem to say, I have the solution. <laughs> Why is it I have the solution or rather than I have the target or... How, is there a story behind that at
0: all? Uh, Hollywood is the story. Um, okay. So what they're gonna what we do uh, when we come to Periscope depth, what my crew will do is they're looking around, they'll do an immediate search to make sure that I'm safe. Um, so no close contacts for a collision uh, purpose. or if we're an interrupted search, we don't want somebody to see the periscope so we lower it for a little bit, and then bring it back up. Um, we'll put the bearing to the contact saying I've, I, I have the contact, whatever it is, and they'll give the bearing off. And, but what we need for solution is the firing solution and that's not the person on the periscope that has the firing solution that's the fire control that's going to input the firing solution which sends the information to uh, the torpedo which is basically telling the torpedo where to go to find the target mm-hmm.
1: and uh, just because just it just came to my mind again how was the Essex after
0: you bumped into her? Well, she was fine she had, uh, she had a little bit of repair to do um, but she didn't have any major systems hit either Um, And uh, so she was I think she was only about two months in the dry dock I I, I can't remember exactly But she was very superficial repairs for her
1: Okay Uh, Well USS Nautilus I can't thank you enough uh, For taking
0: the time Is there anything else that you would like to say? Um, I'm available for touring for the public So uh, my mission now is to Have the public aware of the submarine force uh, And aware of my history As part of the submarine force museum And if anybody wants to come visit me uh, and winter hours are from 9am to 4pm uh, Wednesday through Monday I'm closed Tuesday so my crew can uh, do some preservation On me and throughout the museum Just you know, upkeep and that type of stuff Because I am a ship sit- sipping, sitting in the water mm-hmm. um, But uh, So Wednesday through Monday 9 to 4 uh, during the winter And 9 to 5 in the summer um, And uh, after that I'm pretty much available for anybody to come see And I'd love to see anybody here Well excellent Well, Thanks for taking the time to sit down and talk to us
1: today um, and then, uh, I know, guys, this is kind of an odd way to do the interview, but I thought it was kind of unique. Uh, Commander Boyd, how do you, how, how, you as a
0: sailor, when did you join? So, uh, putting on my, my actual hat now. So, I, uh, I joined June 13th of 2004.
1: What drove you to do it?
0: Uh, so, my father was in the FBI. Uh, there's been a long history of my family being in the military, and it's just one of those things... Not necessarily the military, but serving in some capacity has always kind of been one of the things that our family does. Not everybody, but uh, uh, someone usually does. And this is something that I'd always grown up with. Um, and looking at what to do, uh, I liked the Navy. I've always liked ships. Um, in fact, I wanted to go to college and you know learn how to design ships, but I quickly decided that naval architecture wasn't what I wanted to do, and I had aeronautical engineering instead because I also liked planes. Um, but I couldn't fly. And so uh, I wanted the Navy. Thought about a pilot at first, but I wore glasses, and uh, at the time they weren't uh, the the surgery to get correct vision wasn't. It was a 50/50 shot whether or not I'd have a job coming out. Um, and I liked submarines, so I did a week with everybody, all those different branches. Uh, so the surface, um, our communities should say, surface, submarine, aviation, and actual Marines. Um, and I liked my time on board the submarine. It was a close-knit crew. Um, I liked the mission role. And I like the idea of uh, there's two types of uh, ships in the world, submarines and targets. <laughs> <laughs> you know,
1: uh, majority of our listeners are all have a love for the sea, uh, which is why they listen to a podcast that's based upon people who make their living mm-hmm. uh, from the sea. And I, I know it's a bit of a stretch to, to, um, for the majority, vast majority of, of my uh, podcasts in the past have been. Um, strictly on commercial fishing, but I think that this brings a very unique view um, as stretching the maritime industry because you are, in fact, making your living in the maritime industry. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thank you for your service. How long have you been in now?
0: Uh, just over 15 years now. 15. Is is Commander fast-tracked at 15? Uh, uh, seems... It's yes and no. It just depends. Every year group uh, has a different promotion rate, and that's set by... Um, how many people we have in or not in so my year group was my first my you get two looks usually for each rank um and so my first look i made it which is when most of us do make it usually make it on your first look uh second look is a much smaller percentage um it was at the 15 year point but it was the same as everyone else in my year group and it just happened to be numbers in the navy and every community line officers which is submarine aviation surface seals they'll have one uh screening board uh for all them and then supply uh, uh, the, the um, staff side or the medical side will have another one and every community promotes at a slightly different rate just based off of what the numbers in their communities need so what has the Navy given you um, it's given me a lot so besides obviously having a job which thank you it's always important depending on what time of the economy is it can be more or less difficult to get a job uh, it it got me out of Ohio which is nice, because I liked boats, and it's kind of hard to do a lot. There's a little bit on the Ohio River, but not that much. Great Lakes. Um, I was, I'm from Cincinnati. Okay. So um, uh, so I had the Ohio River. Uh, great Lakes would have been a great one, but I just wasn't there. So it got me out of Ohio. Um, it got me an education, so they paid for uh, my uh, my bachelor's degree through the ROTC program. Um, and it's gotten me uh, um, all over the place. So I've been stationed here in Grog, Connecticut. I've been in Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. I've even been in Millington, Tennessee, which... Um, right outside of Memphis. Never thought that I, there's a Navy base there, but there is. That's um, where we do some of our admin work is out of there. Um, but I've gotten to see the world from Spain, Limassol, Greece, Suda Bay, Greece, uh, Bahrain, Diego Garcia, to uh, Japan, Guam, South Korea, Philippines. Um, I've seen all those countries and all through the Navy. So. Doesn't the world look the same when you're
1: 500 feet underneath?
0: Yeah, you pull in the port eventually. <laughs>
1: Commander Boyd, uh, thanks for taking the time to actually role-play the Nautilus' story today. I think it's a really unique story. Uh, I'll be uh, exiting here and going through the museum myself. But uh, uh, anything else that you'd like to say, as Commander Boyd. Uh, No, thank you for the time. All right, thank you. you. Guys, we'll see you next time.